Morning, friends. Good to see you today. Luke chapter 19. If you have a Bible, pull it out. You can borrow one from the pew rack in front of you or under the seat that you're sitting in. Uh, as you turn there, uh, have you ever noticed that at some point in every story, in every good story, uh, there is a moment when the tension rises, when the intensity increases, when things start to feel uh, nervous or, or anxious or, or fearful or questioning. And that happens in every great story. It also happens in most really good athletic contests, right? Um, I recently got for our family uh, this past Christmas a ping pong table, which was more of a gift for me than the kids. But uh, one of the things I've loved about having the ping pong table is we've been playing a ton of ping pong. And my two oldest kids are about the same you know, skill level. And so one of the joys of my life is to pit them against each other and try to bring out the worst in them. No, and try to try and bring out the best in them, I mean. And, uh, but one thing I've noticed is I've watched them play and they've had this ongoing battle is that it's, they'll start off just sort of playing and it's sort of, it's fun, it's friendly, it's cordial. And then at some point in the game, something will happen that turns up the volume just a bit. Either little brother will spike on older sister or older sister will subtly talk good trash to younger brother, um, the game will get close, we'll get close till the end, and all of a sudden, the intensity starts to climb. That's exactly what we have in our story today. We have come to the place in the Gospel of Luke where the intensity is starting to rise. As we dive into our passage today, Luke, Luke sets the scene by telling us this. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus started on this road, on this path, on this journey toward Jerusalem, way back in Luke chapter 9. We've been on this road for a while. And if you just want a quick snapshot of the Gospel of Luke, the first nine chapters are primarily about the mind. It's about understanding who this Jesus is. The next nine chapters are primarily about um, the will, our will. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And then, as we move into these final chapters in the Gospel of Luke, we see Luke make another shift, and now he's focused on our hearts. He's spoken to our minds, he's spoken to our wills, and now he's engaging our hearts. And the question here in these final chapters is, will you not just understand Jesus, will you not just do things for him, but will you know him, will you experience him, will you see him, will you meet him and receive him on the deepest levels? And so today, we are going to dive into this passage as we near and enter Jerusalem, and we're going to look at three things. We're going to ask three questions. First of all, who does Jesus claim to be? What what is this story saying about who Jesus is? What is Jesus saying about who Jesus is? Second, we're going to talk about the cost of rejecting him. And then finally, we're going to talk about the call to receive him. So who Jesus claims to be, the cost of rejecting him, and the call to receive him. First, who Jesus claims to be. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, 
which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. So Jesus, he's been on this road, on this journey towards Jerusalem. He is almost there, but right before he and his disciples arrive, he stops, he pauses. You see, there's this hill, if you understand the geography of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits here, and on the east side of Jerusalem, there's this hill that runs all up and down the east side, this mount. And on the face of that hill, that's aimed at the city, toward the city, is a giant grove of olives, which is why that particular hill is sometimes called the Mount of Olives, right? This little hill of olive trees. Now, right on the other side of that hill, on the non-Jerusalem side, is this little teeny town called Bethphage. It was sort of like one of those little towns that maybe if you're driving through the Midwest, doesn't even have a stoplight. Maybe there's an old gas station that used to serve gas, but now it's just a teeny little convenience mart. This is like the smallest of towns. A little farther to the east is the little bit larger town of Bethany. But as Jesus leaves Bethany with his disciples, as he nears Bethphage, this little village, he sends his disciples ahead, and he tells them that they're going to find there, in this small village, a colt for him to ride on. Now this is important because... In the Roman world, when a king was about to enter a city, they always rode. Kings never walk into a city. Kings always ride in. So when Jesus, who's been on foot for a long time, ever since the beginning of this gospel, stops just outside the city of Jerusalem and makes this announcement, Hey, fellas, as we go into Jerusalem, I'm going to ride. This was a big deal. This was a big moment. He is making a declaration here of his kingship. He's saying, of that city that we're riding into, I'm king of it. And I'm about to declare it. And friends, the disciples had to be ecstatic. This is the moment they've been waiting for, when Jesus will finally declare himself as Israel's king. But then, they discover the animal he chooses. It's not a stallion. It's not a steed. It's a, it's a colt. A young donkey. And now at this point, the disciples, I can only imagine, must be thinking to themselves, Jesus needs a PR director. He needs an image consultant so bad. Um, because if you really wanted to make a powerful statement, if you really wanted to make a, a statement as a king who had authority and strength and victory and force, you would always ride into the city on a horse. That's what the Romans would do. But, but, if you rode in on a colt, if you rode in on a donkey, it was the sign that a king was coming in humility. That a king was coming not with power or force, but with peace. Jesus here says, I'm riding in, I'm a king, but I'm a king that comes in peace. Luke also goes out of his way to highlight for us another um, factor in this decision around this animal. He says to the disciples, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. That seems kind of like a weird fact, a weird piece of information to tag on. But it wasn't. In, In the ancient Near East, 
animals that had never been ridden were always being saved or consecrated for very special monumentous occasions. They were reserved for for dignitaries, for rulers, for kings in very significant moments. And so by specifically choosing this animal, this unridden animal, Jesus is again saying, take notice, this is going to be a significant event. This ride into Jerusalem is going to be sacred. This will be no ordinary Jerusalem entrance, friends. Another thing I want to point out in this section, maybe you noticed it as we we read, is that uh, Luke very intentionally writes this story to show us who is in control. He shows us very clearly who's in control. Um, Jesus pauses, he says to his disciples, go on ahead, and in this village you're going to find this this animal, this colt tied up, it's unridden, you're going to get it, you're going to bring it to me, right? And it's almost like all of a sudden we've entered into the realm of Jedi Jesus, right? And these are not the droids you're looking for. He knows the future, he can see this colt, they haven't gone there yet, and yet he knows it's there. And you get this sense that Jesus is planning something. That, that he's got something up his sleeve. It says in verse 32, those who went who were sent ahead, went and found it just as he had told them. Things are shaping up just the way Jesus wants them to. He's the one who's orchestrating this whole thing. And I bring this up, friends, because sometimes I think we fall into the trap of when we think about Jesus coming into Jerusalem and being arrested and beaten and crucified. We, we have this sense that Jesus just fell victim to a set of unfortunate circumstances. That this whole thing, this whole tragedy just happened to him and yet Luke wants to tell us that is simply not the case. Do you want to know why Jesus is arrested and beaten and crucified? Because he planned it that way. Because that is how he wants it. He is king. He is calling the shots. As they were untying the colt, Its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. Now again, this is another strange moment to me. If you think about this, you're one of the disciples, you go into this small village, you find this animal, it's just as Jesus said, and you're kind of going, Ooh, this is spooky. And Jesus, again, we're reminded how cool he is, and you go to get the colt, and then the owner shows up. Whoa! What's up? Taking my colt. <laughs> and, and then they just say, the Lord needs it. And it's almost as if the guy goes, okay. I'm like, what's the deal with that? Now, someone just shows up to take my car. And I say, um, excuse me, sir, why are you taking my car? And they say, the Lord needs it. I'm not going to say, okay. Um, even if they say Jesus needs it, we're going we're gonna to talk a bit. Um, what's happening here? What's happening here is, again, this is part of a Roman system. Luke's readers would clearly understand that rulers and dignitaries and kings had the right to use any animal when it was needed. And so again, what Luke is saying to us in this moment is, Jesus gets this colt. He has the rights to this animal. Why? Because he's king. Because Jesus is, is not just some ordinary rabbi. He is a king. They brought it to Jesus, that's the colt. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Now, this whole story 
that we're reading today. Some of you have heard it before. It's traditionally preached on a certain Sunday of the year, and it's called what? Palm Sunday. Uh, it's traditionally the Sunday right before Easter because at least some scholars believe that this, these events happen to the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. I happen to believe this happens on Monday, but we'll get into that another time. Um, at any rate, this is Palm Sunday, and yet, if you read Luke's version of this story, what is noticeably absent here? Palms. There's no palms in Luke. If you read Matthew, if you read Mark... Um, I think if you, if you read John, not if you read John, um, if, but if you read Matthew and Mark, you'll find they have, that the crowds have palms and they lay palm branches down, but in Luke they lay what? Their cloaks, their coats down. What's, what, what's the deal with the discrepancy here? Well, A, they probably laid both, but Luke highlights the cloaks. Why? Because he writes to a, a, a wider audience. He, he writes to a wider Greco-Roman audience. And palm branches were the national symbol for independence for Israel. But that's not Luke's point here. Cloaks in the Roman world were what people laid down when a king was coming to town. So once again, what is Luke hammering home to me and you? Jesus is a king. But not just any kind of king. Not just an earthly king. Luke will up the ante even more. When he came near, verse 37, the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You might notice the quotes around that final chant. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a quote taken from a very famous passage in the book of Psalm. Psalms 119. It's a passage not just about any king, but the promised Davidic king. This is a passage about the Messiah, the one who would come to restore and rule and reign over all the earth. And if all of these clues leading up until now were not enough, now Luke will cap off this declaration that Jesus is the ultimate king with one of, I think, the greatest New Testament um, exchanges um, of all. Luke chapter 19, verse 39. As Jesus rides down on this colt, the cloaks are going down, the praises are being hailed, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them they're mistaken. Tell them that that you are not the king that they claim you are. Tell them that you are not Messiah. Jesus, you better get them to be quiet. Because we don't say that other word in our house. Why are the Pharisees so urgently directive of Jesus to, to make his followers be quiet? I'll tell you why. Because they're scared. Because they're terrified. Because they understand this reality. Rome, the ruling power in Jerusalem, does not take hails of kings and kingdoms lightly. The Pharisees are saying, not so subtly here, Jesus, you're going to get us all killed. At any minute, hordes of Roman soldiers could come pouring out of the city and massacre this entire crowd if you don't get your followers to stop declaring that you are the king. 
You see, even in this request to have Jesus rebuke his disciples, the Pharisees themselves are affirming this reality. Jesus is claiming, his disciples are affirming, he is king. And then how does Jesus respond? One of my favorite Jesus responses in all the Gospels. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You see, Jesus is saying, I will not rebuke them. I will not correct them because they are right. In fact, I have not just come to be a king over Israel. I have not just come to be a king over humanity. The magnitude of my kingdom is so significant, so enormous. It has such immense impact that all of creation, even the stones, will literally be transformed and redeemed through my kingdom. You see, what Luke shows is that Jesus claims here that he is the messianic Davidic king that will redeem and restore and rule not just over Jerusalem, not just over Israel, but over all of creation. What he's saying here is Jesus is not just some king, he's the Davidic king, the king that will rule now and forever over everything that's been created. That's the message. Who does Jesus claim to be? the Savior, the King of the entire world. And so the question that now lingers is this, what about you? Have you determined that Jesus is King? Have you laid your cloak down for Him? Have you truly made Him the ruler of your life? Have you not just prayed a prayer and gotten a ticket to heaven, but have you allowed Him to be the reign and ruling factor in all of your heart and soul and mind and life? Is He calling the shots in every single area of your life? Because that's who He is, that's who He claims to be, that's who He wants to be for you. Not just some religious figure, He wants to be King. Now, that's a foreign concept for us, isn't it? Because we're Americans. We're used to democracy. We don't like kings. i tell you what, something that's different about a king. They have ultimate authority. There are no checks and balances. This is not a democracy of any kind. This is Jesus saying, my way or the highway in your life. That's what he wants. That's who he is and who he claims to be. Have you allowed him to call the shots of your life? Is Jesus the ruling force in your life that he has come to be? Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. You see, we've seen Jesus claim to be king and now Luke shows us the cost of rejecting him as king. You see, in the same way that Jesus could see the future of what would happen with that cult, Jesus can see the future of what will happen with the people of Jerusalem. And he knows this, that in less than a week, the shouts of praise and the hails of king will turn to cackles of crucify him. 
He knows, he knows that instead of receiving him as the kingdom he offers, the people of Jerusalem, the people of Israel, they will seek out and instead put their hope in an earthly kingdom. You see, they hail Jesus. They praise Jesus. Why? They want him to come and overthrow Rome. They want him to come and be the king of their city. He, they want him to come and develop an earthly kingdom for them right then and there. And for this reason, Jesus weeps. He weeps because they reject the kingdom that he offers. They reject the king that he is. And instead, they opt to seek out an earthly kingdom. That's where their hope is. That's where their security is. That's where they think they will find their peace. In Israel, in a Davidic king sitting on the throne of Israel, in freedom from Rome, that will bring us peace, they think. And Jesus says, ah, if you had only known what would really bring you peace. And so he weeps. I'm not really sure what to do with that right now. I'm th- trying to think of something clever. I have nothing. Um, we're just going to ignore it and move on. The, the, the Greek word for weeps in this passage is the word kleo, and it literally means to sob openly. And so you can just picture the scene as the people lay down their cloaks and hail him and shout, Glory to God in the highest praise. And Jesus is sobbing. He sobs because he knows this, that their rejection of him as king and their continued pursuit of their own earthly kingdom will not bring peace. In fact, it will bring utter destruction. And he describes it here. Jesus knows that in AD 70, roughly 40 years later, the emperor Nero will unleash his Roman generals on the people of Israel. And not only will the city of Jerusalem be completely annihilated, but hundreds and thousands of Jewish men and women and children will be brutally put to death in the very place where he now stands. If you'd only known on this day what would bring you peace, friends, every single time... We seek safety and freedom and security and peace through the pursuit of an earthly kingdom. The result will be destruction on some level. You see, Jesus speaks this to a people. He speaks this to a nation. And he says, if you're going to put your hope in an earthly kingdom, it will lead to your destruction. But I also think he speaks it to us as individuals and says, if you're going to put your hope, if you're going to seek to find peace in the things of this world, in the kingdoms of this world, instead of in me as your king, there will ultimately be destruction. And the consequences of that may not be apparent or immediate, but the effects will take hold and they will be significant. Friends, where in your life are you looking for peace? Where in your life are you letting someone or something else give direction to your life? Where are you putting your hope? Is it in Jesus? Is it in His rule and reign in your life? Or is it in something else? Because here's the promise. promise. If it's in something else, that something else is not strong enough to hold it and it will collapse and it will fail you and you will eventually be devastated. See, the heart of Jesus in this passage is to save us from that. And that's why he comes. That's why he weeps, because he sees the destruction that can be so easily avoided if we would only trust in him. Don't fail to recognize, friends, that God has come to you. Don't face the consequences of rejecting him. Who does Jesus claim to be? He claims to be king. 
What does rejecting him look like? It looks like devastation, destruction, heartache, heartbreak, disappointment. And finally, what does receiving him look like? Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. See, Jesus, it's interesting, that as soon as he enters the city, as soon as he enters this city that ultimately rejects him, that rejects the king he is and the kingdom he brings, where does he go? He goes right to the heart of the city. He goes to the temple. He goes right to the heart of the nation. He goes right to the heart of these people and he starts doing work. He starts driving out the things that have kept them from him. And what he says, he says this very profound statement that's actually kind of a mashup of two Old Testament passages. He says, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And in that one statement, Jesus is painting a picture for them of what it means and what it looks like to truly make him king, to truly receive him as king. The first passage he's referencing is Isaiah 56. Listen to this passage. One thing that's true about about Jesus and the entire New Testament is when a passage from the Old Testament is quoted, it's generally just a, a section of that passage But the author, the speaker, is is referring to the larger passage, the larger context of what's going on. It'd be like, in our world, if I said to you something like, a bird in the hand, right? You'd, You'd know instinctively that I wasn't just saying that. I would be referring to the entire phrase, right? To the entire analogy. Same thing is true here with Jesus. And so when he references these passages, he's referencing something larger. Listen to Isaiah 56, and you'll see where it ties in. He says, foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Do you see what Jesus is specifically speaking against here? He goes into the temple and he finds a system that is taking advantage of outsiders. Outsiders are bringing their their sacrifices and the temple officials are saying, no, those aren't good enough. You need to buy ours. By the way, they're marked up by about 10 times. It's like buying a hot dog at the Moda Center. Complete and utter ripoff. You can't bring your own food in, but we're sure happy to take your money. It's like one of those systems, except it's based on religion. Right? And so now these people, now these people in God's name are taking advantage of people far from God. They're setting up barriers for people to get to God. They're saying it's really more about us and our people and our nation. We don't care about all nations. You see, you know what they've lost? In the midst of their patriotism and their national allegiance, they've forgotten about kingdom allegiance. Kingdom allegiance has been prevented by national allegiance. Now, friends, I couldn't have planned it this way if I tried. But I don't think it's any accident that we end up talking about embracing Jesus as king, and one of the things that gets in our way of that 
is choosing national allegiance over kingdom allegiance. Right? You know, friends, I don't know if America has been great or will be great again. I really don't care because our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And that's the kingdom we want to be great. That's the kingdom we want to be a part of. And so Jesus here speaks strongly to that bent. And he says, you've lost yourself. You've put your hope. You've sought to find your peace in nationalism. And you've missed the point completely. And you've missed the kingdom of God. And you've forgotten about outsiders. And you've forgotten about people far from me. And instead of helping them find me, you've just put up barriers between myself and them. And that is not my heart. That is not what will happen if I am truly king. And then here's the second passage. It's Jeremiah 7, uh, verses 9 through 11. This is the second part of the kind of mashup that Jesus uses. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. You see, Jesus speaks against our actions and our perspective, alienating outsiders, but he speaks against false religion here. Religion that just goes through the motions, but never actually makes Jesus king. Religion that says, I'll come to church and I'll do some religious activities, but in terms of inviting Jesus deep into my mind and heart and life and saying, I surrender it all to you, every part of me to you. I don't want any part of that. I'll just be a Christian, a church person. And Jesus says, there's no such thing. You know what a Christian is? Someone who has declared, Jesus is king, Jesus is the Lord, and everything I am is now surrendered to you. And it may take some time, God, for you to rule and reign over every part, but you have access to it all. This is not just empty religion. This is real surrender. Real surrender so that people far from God can see God at work in us and then be brought to Him. You see, Jesus, He's, he's got some opinions here, friends. He's got some strong thoughts. And so Jesus goes into the very heart of the city and he goes to the very center of this nation and he goes to the core of this people and he just begins to clean house. He begins to drive out anything that will challenge his rule and reign. In other words, Jesus makes this very clear statement and here's where it gets personal. If he's going to be king, there are some things that have to go. What does it mean to accept Christ is king to not just say, hey, I'd like to have a little Jesus in my life, but Jesus be king. It means there's some other things in your life that won't work with that. That Jesus is going to have to clean up and drive out. In this passage, Luke doesn't ever talk about tables, but in other passages, what does Jesus do? He flips the tables over, right? I like to say he gets table flipping mad at what he sees in the lives of his people. And friends, When God looks deep into my mind and heart and soul and life, there's some things he sees in me, and I know there's some things things he sees in you that make him table-flipping mad. And he longs as king of your life to drive those out. Got any places like that? 
got any places in your life, in your mind, in your attitudes, in your relationships, in your behaviors, any places where Jesus just says, I got some rearranging to do. There's some things I need to get rid of. There's some things that need to be cleared and cleaned and driven out of you. Kind of places like that. Friends, Jesus' desire, his longing, is to be king of his people, of his world, of his church, and of every single life in this room. And so I just want to give you a little time this morning as we close. We're going to move into a time of communion. The ushers are going to come forward and they're going to distribute the communion elements and so you can just stay where you are. But as they distribute the elements, I want to invite you into a time of prayer and communion and conversation with God. There's going to be some prompts that go up on the screen, some questions. And let me just ask you to do this. Would you take this chance? Would you be willing to just have a conversation with God about some of these things we've been talking about today. Just allow Him to speak into your life and answer questions to Him. And maybe if there's places that are unclear to you, you can just ask Him to reveal some things to you today. But friends, He longs to be King. And He longs to get rid of the things in our lives that prevent Him from being so. So take a moment, spend some time with the Lord, and then we'll take the communion together in just a few minutes.